Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast on this episode. A dive into the history books, the Winnipeg Blue Bomber history books with Roy Rosmus and Scott Taylor, who have written another Blue Bomber history book. We'll tell you more about that. Also, we talked to Dr. Glenn Bergeron of the University of Winnipeg about the brain and the different injuries that can result in impact with the head, looking at Brian Little's situation and the slap shot he took to the head earlier this week. Plus, the MJHL report. We talked to the leading scorer of the Manitoba Junior Hockey League. That's on the podcast. All right, I'm joined in studio by the people responsible for the stack of books I got right here. There are four books about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We've got Quiet Hero, the Jonas Era. We've got Peter Brock through the championship years and a new one, The Beginning, through the golden years. And I'm joined in studio by authors Roy Rosmus and Scott Taylor. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in tonight. Welcome. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having us, especially Roy. <laughs> so let's start. So this is volume one, the new book is. Correct. But it's the fourth book. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was Star Wars things, the way Scott explains it. This is a prequel. Okay. It's kind of a, a marketing thing we thought of. Get the other ones out first, get everybody interested, then come back to volume one. And go way back. And go way back and, you know, whet the appetite. For I think he's lying. I don't think that that's the real truth. I, th- I think the real truth is, is that Roy really wanted to do that book on Kenny Plain. Yes, they did. And, yeah. and, and I think everybody in Winnipeg has always wondered why there hadn't been a book done on Ken Plain. And so, so when Roy and I sat down with Ken for hours and hours and hours of interviews, um, we were shocked to realize that Ken had kept every clipping from his entire no career in a book. scrapbook. It's gigantic. Wow. And so we were able to sit down between those interviews and that book and, uh, and put together a book that um, we're both proud to say uh, his wife tells us he reads every day to this day. So it's it's... That was the start, and from there, um, the second book was was Jonas, who's your Jonas, buddy, yeah, your pal. Yeah, 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 now he is. So, yeah, so you, you wanted to do a Jonas book, yeah. and, and then we started to think about the whole Star Wars thing and do it from dates. Right. So it went to um, what was the most exciting period of bomber football in our lifetime other than those four years with Kenny Plain, and that was Dieter Brock coming to town, to the 1990 Grey Cup win. The three Grey Cups. Yeah. And, and for me, it was, it was my greatest experience ever with, with football, maybe with, with sport. The Jets were, were fun at that time. They were great to be around. Um, we all knew Steen and Howard Chuck, and they were really big members of the community. But the Bombers were still the Bombers. That's right. And, and those teams from 76 to 90 were, even though they didn't win every year, they were exciting every year. They were always fun, and they, they scored a lot of points, and it, it was great football to watch. Yep. And, then, and then Roy started to dig up the 1930s stuff, and I became absolutely fascinated by the people, the people who played then, Fritzy Hansen. Jeff Nicklin, Chess McCants, Bud Marquardt, Rosie Edelman, Rosie Edelman, and then the the, the two Stevenson. people, the two people who built the teams, uh, Joe Ryan um, and Reg Threlfall, just in, incredible, incredible stuff. And there was a guy who was the manager of the University of Manitoba Bison's hockey team in 1924 who went to law school at the U of M and then got himself a job with the football club working for Joe Ryan as the team's treasurer and, um, and travel secretary. And his name was G. Sidney Halter. 
And the amazing part about G. Sidney Halter is he became the man who created the Canadian Football League. Oh, okay. And at the Royal Alex Hotel in Winnipeg in 1958, uh, they named him the first commissioner, and he had been with that team since 1935. So it's an incredible story, um, an incredible history, and we are less than a year away from the 90th anniversary. Yes. And it really, when we look at the history of sport, it's these central figures and people like Fritz Hansen and people like Kenny Plain. When you look back, and part of it is you, you know, you 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 kind of worship them and what they were able to be because you think of all these good memories Mm -hmm. of what that time was like. And it's very different now, obviously the way the the sports landscape is for sure. But it's, uh, it's, you know, part of the gist of this thing is, and I've been asked several times, like how did the bombers uh, get to be such an integral part of the community and fabric of life in Winnipeg? Well, this tells the story of it. I mean, it's absolutely amazing back in the thirties, that the, uh, the board and the executive and these committees, there were 35, 40 businessmen on those things putting the programs together. And they were getting guys here, not just imports, but imports who wanted to be part of the community. Because so many played and stayed. Hanson, Stevenson, Edelman, uh, well, Nicklin was a Winnipegger. So that's, this is the foundation, okay? This is where it started. This was where everything came from. To give you the understanding of what the bombers are today and why the franchise is the way it is. Does this touch on the World War II and the impact of that? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that because a very, very, very little known story, I guess, and I'll be putting it out on Twitter and getting Scott to put it out because of Remembrance Day coming. Winnipegger by the name of Jeff Nicklin, okay? This boy, Winnipeg boy, uh, multi-sport athlete, two-time Great Cup champion, gets married and then gives it all up to go to war, to fight tyranny. Mm-hmm. He had it all and he gave all. He went overseas and a month before the end of the war, he was killed. Mm-hmm. A son he never met. And, uh, of course, a, a widow he left behind. The battalion, the first Canadian parachute battalion that he commanded, donated a trophy that's still given away today, the Jeff Nicklin Memorial Trophy. So I want people to know that, especially with this. You know, there's there's a lot of in, a lot of people in there that were getting out time, you know, putting out teasers and that. But this Jeff Nicklin story, I'll be putting out around uh, Remembrance Day. So there's a, a lot of stories I'd imagine from this covers oh. the 30 through 67. Mm-hmm. And how many Grey Cups did they capture in that time? Seven. Oh. Seven of the ten during from from 35 to 67. Okay. The fact that they haven't been able to capture a whole lot since. Hmm. What does that say? Want to take that oh, I'll leave that to you, Roy. You're the one who tweets about it all the time. <laughs> oh, there's there's a million different things. It's uh, I don't know. I, I, a lot of it's personal, but it's based on knowing the bombers the way I do. Right. Um, I guess if I look at the championship years and I look at the type of people that were here then, you can see threads. And so, are they there today? I don't know. It's not for me to call. Is there anything about the, this year's team that you look at and think this could be one oh, that yeah. people remember? Yeah, I think so. I think there's well, a I'm the guy who checked them as 18-0 at the start of the year. I thought when the season yeah. started, this was as good a team as any team if they yeah. could stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've seen what's happened to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly think they have a hope this weekend. And I always go back to the 88 team. I look yeah. at all of the Bomber teams and I go back to 1988. 
1988, Sean Salisbury was the quarterback. <laughs> um, that wasn't a particularly good football team on the offensive side. The defense was out of this world. Blue Thunder. They, they just, it was spectacular. But it wasn't a team that anybody expected to win. They were kind of lucky to beat Toronto in the semifinal. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the Grey Cup, and you, you can see it on, on YouTube. You can still pick up that, that, that whole Grey Cup, about an hour of that Grey Cup game. And... They looked like they were doing everything they possibly could to give it away. Tony mm. Cherry was running through them. Matt Dun- Dunnigan was throwing for 400 yards. The, the Bombers were dead. They were up 22-19. It was all over. And then Dexter Fowler tips a pass on the five-yard line. Delbert Fowler. Delbert Fowler. Dexter Fowler is the outfielder for the... There you go. <laughs> um, the ball's tipped by Delbert Fowler. It bounces off of a, a BC player into mm-hmm. the arms of Michael Gray and suddenly the Bombers had a legitimate chance to win it. They could barely get out of their own end. Cameron gives up the safety. It's 21, uh, 22-21. They kick it off. Um, who's Anthony? Cherry. An- an- no, no, no. Um, a longer name, a, a punt returner. Forget his name. Okay. He runs it back 45 yards. There's a penalty on the play. So BC's way back, and Dunnigan tries to throw three long bombs, and none of them work because James Jefferson is so good. Yes. Just covering uh, <laughs> covering Williams, and it's just it's it's just a wonderful thing to watch. But I look at this team like that team. Yep. If things fall into place and if the defense gets the job done, they could win the Grey Cup. They were 9-9 nine and nine in 1988. Yep. First time a, a less-than-winning team won the Grey Cup. And we've seen it happen a exactly. lot. <laughs> we've seen yeah, it since then, the we've seen it happen a lot. Yeah. yeah. So it's very possible. So 29 years, does it feel like a long time? Well, you know, I really feel for the young kids that ask me questions about this all the time, and is it ever going to happen? Because I've been lucky enough to see seven of the ten Grey Cups, and it's long for me. So I can, <laughs> I can imagine what it's like for the kids. But that's why I say that. Hey, listen. Read this stuff. Find out your history. you got nothing to be ashamed about. There's more firsts for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers than there's been for any team in the CFL. And they're all in the book. You know, uh, be proud. It'll come. And so if people want to get their hands on this book, they're going to have to wait a little bit, right? Well, okay. That, uh, the actual printing of the hardcover book later on won't be till the spring. This special edition, I'm only printing so many of them. Uh, it's going to be autographed by Scott and I and the oldest living bomber, Bud Irving, there's four extra pages in there, three of them being of uh, custom artwork that I've done and a picture of the 1935 team and executive. It's at the end of the book. And uh, they're only available for me. These will not be in any bookstores. Not- so they got to find you. Yeah, they got to. Well, I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Unless I can give my email now. At Heart of Blue and Gold. Yeah. Well, Heart of Blue and you'll, Gold on Twitter. Heart of Blue and Gold, you'll be Twittering all weekend about yeah, this football Yeah, I will. Team. Look, look for me on Twitter, and I'll give you my email there if you want it. His but... scorching hot takes on this weekend's action. <laughs> scorching hot. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Well, I appreciate two of you coming down. This is great, and uh, certainly a great way for people to learn history about the Blue Bombers, especially here. Is we hope it doesn't get into, you know, year 30 of the draft, no. but it could. We don't know. Roy Rossmith, Scott Taylor, thanks for coming thanks, in. Christian. Thanks, appreciate Christian. Thanks, Christian. Appreciate it, buddy. Coden Grayeye scored eight goals and added 10 assists in his first full season in the MJHL last year with the Dauphin Kings. But this year, explosion, nine goals, 20 assists in 18 games to lead the league in scoring. The 18-year-old from Winnipeg is one point ahead of teammate Baron Thompson in points in the league for the seventh place Kings. And he joins us now on the sports show. And Nakoda, I know there's a lot of hockey left to be played, but how does it feel to be number one in points right now? Uh, 
feels feels pretty good. But uh, a lot of that goes to my uh, line mates, Darren Thompson and Grady Hodge. How have you enjoyed your time in Dauphin through this now into your second season? Uh, I've definitely enjoyed my time. I have really good billets. Uh, I billet with the printer Elskies, and they make living here in Dauphin pretty easy for me. So how is life a little different in a smaller town? Uh, life here is pretty nice. It's I don't mind living in a smaller town. Nothing's really far. There's no traffic. It's pretty nice here, actually. Anything you miss about Winnipeg? Uh, maybe going to Jets games. That's about it. Right now, you're not missing much. So. No, yeah. When did you get started playing hockey? I started playing organized hockey when I was five, but skated when I was started skating when I was three, I think. It was something that your family wanted you to do, or did you always, you know, were you bugging them to try on skates? No, yeah, it definitely was mainly from my family. Um, Dad didn't really get to grow up playing hockey, and he wanted that for me to be something to do. Do you have siblings? Uh, I've got two younger sisters. Okay, so you were the you were the firstborn, so you got the the trial and error of hockey to begin with. Yeah, they don't really play hockey; they just play soccer and dance. Okay, That's about it. So, when you first started out playing hockey, were you always one of the better players, or did it take a while for you to maybe separate from the pack? Um, I always had older friends and I just want to keep up to them pretty much. So that's pretty much where the, where hockey started for me, just trying to keep up with my older friends. Okay. What position did you start out playing? Were you always a forward? Yeah, I've always been a forward. I didn't really want to watch me sit at the back on the blue line. He wanted me to carry the puck mainly. Okay. How would you describe yourself on the ice? I describe myself as a, a playmaker. I definitely like moving the puck more, but I can work it low, I guess, and I definitely like creating chances for my teammates. So would you rather get an assist or a goal? Uh, 50-50. Yeah. Because so far you've got 20 assists and nine goals, so you got, you're piling up the assists. The fact that you have... As you know, you you last year in fifty eight games, you had eight goals and ten assists. This year, you got nine goals, twenty assists, and eighteen games. What was the difference this season to be, be able to make that huge jump right away here? I just think it mainly be opportunity. I didn't really get the the looks last year, and then this year, I've just had a better opportunity and I've taken advantage of it. What was your off season like between the two seasons? Um, my off season. A normal day for me would just be workout and then probably skate later in the day. And then my job during the summer too was on ice, so I was on the ice quite a bit. Where do you see yourself in the future? Are you going to go to the WHL, you think? Uh, no, my goal is to play Division One hockey. And when do you start looking at those opportunities? Uh, well, that's something like my family and I will take into account, and we're going to – talk with our advisor and go through that process together. Okay. Is that something that's on your mind right now? Or is that further down the road? Um, that's that's further down the road. Like, I'm just pre- focused on really playing well right now. And for your team, what is the ceiling for the Dauphin Kings this season? Well, we had a slow start, but everyone in our room knows we're a lot better team than our record says. And 
we're just looking to prove that. What's the best part of bus rides in the MJHL? Well, uh, for us, our bus rides are pretty fun. We play a lot of cards, and I'd say we get we have a good group of guys who likes playing cards with each other. Now, you said you want to go to Division One. Uh, is there a specific like program that subject that you want to focus on in school? I don't know. I just want to play Division One where I can and see how it goes. I guess what's the biggest thing about moving to the states that you you want to do to play Division One? Like, what's the draw of Division One? Just the atmosphere of the games and how awesome it looks to play hockey and go to school. Right. What's it like living in a billet family? Uh, being part of a billet family is pretty pretty good. I I, I think it's an experience everyone should get playing junior and. I definitely enjoy my billet family and feel like part of the family for sure. How often do you get home? Uh, like to Winnipeg? Yeah. I'd say maybe once or twice a year. Do you miss it? Yeah, I miss home, but here feels like home too, so it's not that bad. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me, and uh, good luck the rest of the season. Thank you. Winnipeg Jets today updated the condition of Brian Little, who last night took a Nikolai Ehlers one-timer off the side of the head. Scary moment at Bell MTS Place. Uh, the team said in a statement that Little went to St. Boniface, got 25 to 30 stitches to close a laceration, and then was transferred to the neurological unit at HSC for further observation. Little was alert, in good spirits, and Global News via sources has learned that the injury is not just a concussion. There's more to it than that. So to talk about head injuries and the importance of closely monitoring them is Dr. Glenn Bergeron, athletic therapist and professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Winnipeg. Dr. Bergeron, is it tough to predict the end result of what could happen to someone's head when there's contact, like a, a body check or like Brian Little, where it's a puck to the head? It's extremely difficult, and I think that's the essence of uh, all of the, the uh, protocols that we put in place because uh, we don't know whether or not someone sustained a concussion, which is a functional injury. All it, it means is uh, it's uh, the, the brain has been shaken and stretched a little bit, and it's just not functioning properly. But there actually hasn't been any brain damage, as opposed to having a bleed in the brain that will take up, that will occupy space within the skull, put pressure on the brain, and actually cause brain damage and potentially even death. Uh, and so. We don't know that at the time of the injury, and the only thing that we can do is hold the person out and watch them for specific signs to see if they deteriorate. So things like vision and level of consciousness and their speech and their memory and their visual eye movements, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things that we would look at in headaches and, and of course, if they become nauseous and things like that. So if if they start showing those signs, then we now have to uh, assume that they are having a, very, a major brain injury that could result in death and that's when it has to be an emergency response but that's why we hold people out of the game right away we say you have had sustained a blow to the head we're pulling you out and we're going to watch you and see and we want to make sure that you don't have that kind of uh, internal bleeding because from the outside when you know you see something like what happened to brian little last night you're thinking well from the outside you wouldn't know if that is a brain bleed or just a concussion just by looking at him, right? No, and and that kind of a blow that he took, uh, uh, certainly, you know, there was some outward signs because there was a laceration, there was a cut to the skull, and there was bleeding there. But at the same time, that's 
that's bleeding of the outer layer of the, of the of the skull, which is the skin. But then what happens to the bone itself? Is there a fracture in the bone itself? We don't know that. And whether or not that blow actually transmitted into the brain and actually ruptured a blood vessel into the brain and causes causing uh, a bleeding inside the skull, which again is life-threatening. We don't know that uh, from, by looking at the outside. So uh, we're trained to assume the worst until it's proven otherwise. How quickly can you make that diagnosis of if it's something worse than a concussion? Well, you can sometimes, sometimes it takes minutes, sometimes it takes hours, and sometimes days for that to happen. It just depends on how, how, how quickly this bleeding is, is uh, 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 how much bleeding you're getting and how fast it's coming and how much pressure it's putting on your brain. But, you know, many times you'll, you'll see boxing, boxers who will uh, sustain a significant blow and they've got a bleed to the brain and they, they'll, they'll die sometimes right on the mat, sometimes they die later on in hospital. Uh, so it just depends on how quickly that bleed is going. So that's one of the reasons why we also say, you know, we look at this 24-hour rule that we want to watch them over the next 24 to 48 hours because we want to make sure that that bleed, if there is a bleed, that it's not, it's not progressing, you know, over a, a slower period of time before the, before, uh, the signs manifest themselves. And that's one reason why Brian Little would go to the HSC Neurological Unit for observation? Absolutely. Yeah, they would have gone there and said, you know, I mean, they're, uh, uh, they would there to watch to see if he had any changing in symptoms, but they would all, because the kind of blow he took, he took that to the side of the head. That's the weakest part of the skull. So the chances of having a skull fracture and also having uh, actually brain bleed is higher hitting, getting hit on the side of the head than it would be to the front or the back. So, you know, he took a just sort of around the ear area. So that's around the temporal area, and that's the weakest bone in the skull. So they would want to make sure that that's not happening, and they would exactly what they were doing is sitting there and watching him and make sure that uh, that uh, he wasn't getting a bleed that was going to progress over time. Now, they also have, you know, the value, the, the, the benefit of doing MRIs, so they could go and actually take an image and see if there's any bleeding inside the brain. So they would probably would have done that in this particular scenario. Concussions normally not, but in this scenario, there's a high risk that he could have had a bleed there as well. So I'm sure that's what they were watching for. Now, the fact that Brian Little missed action at the start of the season, not more, much more than a month ago with a concussion, does that have any impact on this? Well, I am, you know, I would have to say probably not. Uh, you, anybody who gets hit with a puck that's coming out at about 100 miles an hour will probably have those kinds of symptoms, whether they've had a previous concussion or not. I'm curious because NHL players, they've got, you know, they get immediate access, pro athletes, not just the NHL, but, you know, pro teams, if there's an injury that happens, it's taken care of right away. MRI gets done quickly. Let's say something like this happens to someone in a beer league game. The, the shot's not going to be as hard. But let's say the circumstances were the same, where they take a puck in the same spot, you know, from, the, from behind the net. Would they be able to get the quick access to everything just like Brian Little did? Uh, well, there are the people are encouraged. First of all, uh, in those kinds of leagues, we don't have trained people at the site. 
you know, so Rob Millette, uh, as a athletic therapist with the Jets, was there within a minute or two of the, of the impact. So he's there to assess the situation, like, right away. We don't have the benefit of that for a lot of leagues. I know with our program here, we we farm out our students and stuff to hockey, to hockey and football. We have athletic therapists in all the high school football games, but not practices right now. Um, so uh, not all leagues have that immediate recognition. Um, and uh, so then it's dependent on somebody saying, I think you should be going to see a physician or a doctor, but lots and lots of times um, athletes will uh, will uh, uh, deny or try and hide it um, because they don't want to be taken out of the game or they don't really fully understand the ramifications of the concussion. They say, oh, it's, I've just had my bell rung, and that's not absolutely not the case. And so not necessarily it would be there, but uh, at some point in time, if they went to a hospital, and we highly encourage people with concussions to go to the hospital or see their family physicians uh, to get assessed um, to make sure that there isn't anything else that's more sinister happening. Um, uh, and as I said, you know, typically with concussion, if you go to the hospital, one, lots of people will say, well, I want an MRI. They typically won't do an MRI because a concussion, based on all the history and the signs and symptoms of the person is showing, they're probably saying there is a low risk that there's a bleed in this particular case. So we're not going to... Uh, go with an MRI because it's just a functional injury, not a structural injury. But in, in, in Brian Little's case, the history, the mechanism of injury, getting hit by a puck at that speed on the head, then there's a higher higher risk of, of bleeding, so they would be watching out for that. Now, but not everybody who gets a concussion has an MRI, right, even right. at the pro level. Okay. Now, the the spot where it hit him, obviously, was a very vulnerable spot. Let's say he was able to – it hit him in the top of the helmet, would he have been more protected and therefore less likely to have any worse damage? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, if he had been hit at the top of the helmet, the helmets are designed, uh, at least you know, on the top, that they're designed to deflect the puck. So if the puck had hit the top of the helmet, it probably wouldn't have uh, hit and and you know hit and stick, as we say. Right. It wouldn't have stayed there and imparted that energy. It would have deflected off, so there would have been less chance of an injury. But essentially, he's getting hit on the flat side of the helmet, on the flat side of the skull, and so the puck is not being deflected away. So that energy is just being imparted right in, onto the skull, so there's a greater chance of, uh, of uh, further injury. Okay. So this is something obviously that it's a it's a serious thing. Obviously, neither of us are in the hospital room, so we don't know the extent of exactly what's going on for Brian. But this is something where it could be, you know, this is something that's very serious, and who knows how long it could be, right? Yeah, I guess I guess the the thing is that the potential uh, uh, could have been very very serious. Uh, he had a bleed, a serious bleed. My understanding is that. Uh, he is in the hospital and, uh, you know, just by news accounts saying that he's in good spirits and somewhat stable. So that's all good news, I guess. Um, so hopefully he'll be able to recover from that fairly quickly. Well, Dr. Bergeron, I appreciate your time and your insight tonight, and uh, we'll take care. Great. Thanks a lot. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?